Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. If you're a member of staff in primary education, then this is the perfect podcast for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a special guest who has worked in a primary setting and be finding out what inspires them. We will also be asking them for their top tips, resources and philosophies that they are passionate about and, of course, share some of the funny stories that happen along the way. Today, I sat down with uh, Alison Peacock. Um, Alison was recommended to us by Ros Wilson. And I have to say, listeners, Alison was, again, an absolute joy, as as all of our uh, guests have been. But Alison shared some fantastic things. And in fact, if you want to find out a bit more about Alison and and, and the work she's done in primary education and in education in general, all you have to do is Google her. Because when you Google Alison Peacock, she comes up with a Wikipedia page. And I think it's uh, now my goal to be uh, Googled and have a Wikipedia page. Uh, if you out of interest, if you want to know what happens if you Google Matt Roberts into your uh, Google browser, then you will find um, a Matt Roberts who is a personal trainer who is a lot more athletic than I am. Uh, a Matt Roberts who's a television presenter for MotoGP and various other Matt Robertses as well. But Alison Peacock, I'm going to read uh, her bio uh, from the, her Wikipedia page as a bit of an introduction for you, rather than trying to fumble through and create one myself. Dame Alison Margaret Peacock is a British educator, public speaker, writer and best known originator of the Learning Without Limits approach to education. She is the chief executive of the Chartered College of Teaching and as as well as a trustee of Teachverse and a columnist for the Times Educational Supplement. So listeners, when I was uh, recommended by Ros to, to have a word and speak and interview Alison, I was uh, <laughs> a little nervous, I have to say. Uh, but Alison was so, so kind and gracious with her time. And so I don't want to keep you in suspense any longer. Let's sit back, listen and enjoy the episode uh, with Alison Peacock. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Alison Peacock. How are you doing today, Alison? Thank you very much. I'm absolutely fine. Really delighted to be talking to you today, Matt. Marvellous. Thank you so much. And we're so grateful as well to Ros for recommending you on, onto, the podca- onto the podcast. And so, uh, like you said, you can uh, you can talk to her later and blame her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Well, let's start, as we always do, with our quick fire questions. And so these are designed to get to know you a little bit about your journey through primary education and to, uh, to find out a bit of your interests as well. So first of all, uh, Alison, what is your Twitter handle? It's Alison M. Peacock. Fantastic. Great. So our listeners know where to find you. Uh, how many years have you been in primary education? <laughs> um, I haven't actually calculated it. It's probably about 20, I guess, because I've also worked in secondary and I've worked in special um, and I've worked with uh, adults um, in advisory world. So I've been all over the place, but about 20 years, I think, in primary Excellent. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. And it sounds like, obviously, you mentioned it's 20 years in primary, but actually that's quite a lot of experience in other areas in the sector as well, which is really useful. Um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of your roles in primary education, what has been your journey so so far? What, what roles, responsibilities have you had in primary education? So I became a, a teacher in a very small school, which was a class from nursery through to year two, where I was the was the teacher I was there I moved from there to becoming a Senko in a larger um, uh, urban primary school then I moved to becoming deputy head and then I became a head teacher of a school that was in special measures and then 
uh, grew that school, you know, it, it came outstanding quite rapidly and then grew a network of schools and it became a teaching school. So that was the sort of the, the trajectory, if you like. Excellent. That's fun. I have to say that that first uh, class you mentioned about nursery to year two, that sounds like that'd be a very interesting uh, cohort to work with those age ranges. Yeah, it was. And I learned a tremendous amount. And I think prior to that, I taught secondary. So coming from secondary, having a career break, having our two daughters and doing a master's at the time at Cambridge and then going into working in a nursery through to year two. I mean, there were only, I think, 19 children in the class. So that did help. Okay. But um, that that span of um, yeah, the span of age ranges mm. means that you have to teach in a very um, inclusive way, but you also have to be able to recognise individuals because mm. you can't, you couldn't possibly teach everybody all at once Absolutely. in that scenario. Yeah, that's that sounds yeah. fascinating. I'm sure we'll get into a bit more about that as we go into your primary three as well. Uh, in terms of a, a favourite subject, Alison, if you had to be asked what a favourite subject was, what what is your favourite subject? Um, I guess English. I love reading stories with children and telling stories and doing drama and writing. And but I, I, I really love teaching the whole of the primary curriculum. Mm. Um, but I guess English is my favourite. Mm. Excellent. Mm. That's fantastic. Uh, and in your own education, uh, do you have a favourite teacher that you remember? And why were they your favourite teacher? So I had teachers that were absolutely not my favourite. Um, teachers that were, I, there was a teacher who taught me when I was doing my history A-level and she was amazingly dedicated and she arranged for all of the group. I mean, there were only about eight of us, but she arranged to take us to Versailles oh. following our A-levels. So in the summer holidays following our A-levels, we all um, went to Paris and visited Versailles because we've been studying it uh, at history. So yeah, she was very special. Mm, excellent. Sounds like it's almost that, that, that she stands out because she gave you such in, incredible experiences in that teaching journey as well. That's uh, that's great. Um, and then finally, of the quick fire questions, if you were working in a school and you were asked to do an after school club and you could pick whatever you wanted to do, what after school club would you run? Um, I think I'd do something around drama mm. or dance or, yeah, music, that kind of thing. Excellent, excellent. They're quite into the arts then in, in the developing children in that way. That's fantastic. Okay, yes. that's great. Well, let's move on then to the questions that you're, you're a bit more familiar with that we've prepared for. So first of all, and I'm going to change this question slightly because you mentioned obviously you began your teaching career, you know, not in primary. So first of all, what, what inspired you to get into teaching in the first place? And then um, as we go through that discussion, I'd be interested to hear about why that move into primary as well. So let's let's start with the teaching aspect. What uh, interested you and inspired you to become a teacher? So my mum and dad were both teachers. So I always said I wasn't going to go into teaching. Whenever anybody asked me, I said, but I'm not going to do that. And then when I was uh, at university and looking for something to do, it occurred to me that I really loved working with children. I always wanted to be with children. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll give teaching a go. So I actually applied uh, and was accepted to study primary teaching at Warwick University. But then when I came out of Warwick, um, there were there were real there was a real scarcity of jobs. And so I applied to teach in the local secondary school to where my parents lived. And that was quite a tough school um, for my first year. So um uh, a comprehensive school, 11 to 16 comprehensive. Um, yeah, 
yeah, baptism of fire, <laughs> and then went from there to a community college in Leicestershire with 1,400 students. Um, so, yeah, I mean, teaching is teaching, regardless of the phase that you're in. The, the job is the same. It's about making connections with youngsters, um, and it also helps if you know what you're talking about. So, mm. yeah, teaching is teaching. Brilliant. Well, so, so obviously you mentioned you were obviously uh, kind of initially looking at primary education and obviously moved into the secondary, then moved into primary. So what is it about primary education that interested you a lot then? I think it was because when um, I had our two daughters, uh, the, the, the rate in which children learn from babyhood uh, is phenomenal. And I was really interested in how youngsters learn and I was also studying um, for a master's at Cambridge and I was learning about inclusion special educational needs and also early childhood so I just I was just chomping at the bit to kind of get some of these ideas into practice Um, when I was teaching in the secondary sector although I'd trained to be a primary teacher if you'd said to me now I want you to go and um, just cover a nursery class or a reception class I would have been absolutely horrified because I would have said well I I just haven't got a clue what you do Um, so it was an example of of sort of theorizing and learning about um, and having my own children but then really sort of thinking well I want to give this a go so there's always been a bit of a, a restless gene in me that sort of says well why why don't we try this um yeah hence me leading the charter college of teaching because that was a risk so there's always been that kind of restless energy about what can we do next mm. yeah looking to the next step and seeing where we go further how we take that further that's brilliant uh, mm. and i think that's particularly interesting because often when we've spoken to teachers and we've spoken to a number of a large number of teachers now uh, for this podcast it's this idea of making that difference having an impact for children and primary it's often because because it's a lot earlier earlier in their in their lives that you have a much bigger impact in some people's view to have that impact and that change for good i suppose uh, in that way without a doubt i think the difference that primary educators make um is foundational mm-hmm. i think by the time children are 11 They've either learnt to believe in themselves or they've learnt to experience failure and believe they can't. Mm. And I think if we get primary education right and we offer a full breadth of joyful experiences across the whole curriculum and we celebrate children for everything they can achieve, not just whether they can read well or write well or calculate well, then actually it sets them up for life. And also we we work so much with families as well in, in primary education. And that's so important as well, because helping parents to believe in their children um, is fundamental, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And you often find that, you know, parents, I don't know what it is between primary and secondary and what happens there, but there seems to be that parents are much more engaged or they have the opportunity to be engaged with what the children are doing in, in a primary school very often, particularly with the events that we can do. And I suppose perhaps it's because we are catering to a smaller cohort than perhaps high schools do. Maybe that comes into it, but you know, it's, it's, it's great, like you say, to have that community and working with those parents as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, so let's move on then to the next question. And uh, I've asked you before, before the, uh, the podcast to have a think about uh, some funny stories that uh, have got, have happened along the way in your time in primary education. So I would love it if you could share a funny experience or story that's happened in your time whilst working in primary education. Okay, well, of course, the challenge with this question is which do I choose? Mm. Because there are so many um, amusing stories. But um, I think the time that we were, we had a delivery um, of 
<laughs> of plastic ducks. So um, I don't can't remember where it was from. Somebody in the community said, um, "We've got a load of plastic ducks. Would you would you like them?" And so never to turn away a gift of any form whatsoever. I said, yes, absolutely. So all these yellow plastic ducks arrived at the school. And then it was a question of what are we going to do with them? And so we decided to have a whole school design technology uh, competition where all of the children worked in mixed ages, older children working with younger children. And we ran quacky races. So we, all the children... Um, worked together to design buggies for the ducks to carry the ducks and then we had a whole school everybody out on the playground and there was a slope on from the top playground down to the bottom playground and we raced the ducks um and <laughs> I, I just even now when I'm telling you I'm sort of thinking there's a degree of the absurd about that but it was also um it was also great fun mm. and there was there was a purpose to it. I mean, they were engaged in design technology. They were engaged in mixed age working. They were in teams and so on and so forth. But the whole, uh, yeah, the whole scenario of a load of ducks arriving at the primary school and let's do something with them strikes me as being a bit bizarre. <laughs> that is brilliant. I love that because like you say, like when you think about it and the actual opportunities that the children have with that activity is brilliant. Like I love the idea of the mixed age working, the, obviously the real design technology of thinking about planning it, designing it, evaluating it, and after trying it out, brilliant. But actually just this image of the whole school being gathered outside and all these ducks flying down this slope. <laughs> yeah, I think also um, as a head teacher, I was constantly, I was constantly looking for opportunities to engage the community with something a little bit out there. Mm. Um, and, you know, people listening to this who've heard of my work will know about all kinds of things, like as buying a double-decker bus for the playground, bringing a motorbike and sidecar into the library for somewhere to sit and read. You know, we, we constantly were pushing at the boundaries of, of what we might do. And, uh, yeah, accepting a, a lorry load of ducks just um, <laughs> speaks to that whole kind of art of the possible, but also that kind of collective creativity amongst the staff. I mean, what are we going to do with them? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. If you were to put a figure, about how many ducks would you say there were? <laughs> um, about a hundred. Wow, <laughs> okay. that's a lot yeah. of ducks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that. And do you know what? I mean, I, I might make a note of that and just put that in the back pocket just to to see if if we ever <laughs> get the opportunity to have a, a hundred or so ducks. There's a brilliant ready-made uh, plan there. That's fantastic. Uh, but there yeah. You go. There you go. Love that. Fantastic. Well, let's move on then, uh, Alison, to your primary three. So any listeners who are new to the podcast, the primary three, and is this the main bulk of this uh, discussion that we're going to have? And it's all about three things that our listener thinks is very important about primary education. It can be pieces of advice, philosophies, resources, absolutely anything that they think is really important about primary education. So Alison, thank you so much for sending me yours ahead of time. We'll talk about your first one, which is about not labelling children by placing them in so-called ability groups. So let's start off, Alison. Why is this so important to you? We'll have a little discussion about that. Right. Well, I'm not sure we can do it in 10 minutes, but I will do my best. We'll do so, what we can. <laughs> yeah. So the whole um, issue of predetermining what children can achieve is hugely problematic. So I've been involved in research with the University of Cambridge into um, what we termed uh, learning without limits. And this really looked at the issue of ability labelling about 
um, carving up groups of children across the classroom on the basis of who's going to be my top group, who's going to be my bottom group, where's Mrs Jones going to go and sit? Well, she'll always go and sit with the bottom group and then the bottom group will just wait for Mrs Jones to do the work and provide the answers. And the whole idea of being in a so-called bottom group anyway, you know, very, I feel very problematic. So when I became a head teacher, when I was teaching and I was being researched for Learning Without Limits, it all became about how do we enable children to constantly show their personal best? How do we enable them to seek challenge, to be offered enough challenge, to constantly be seeking to improve? Um, and anybody can improve. If you take that as your core ethos, regardless of your prior attainment, you're able to improve on your current best. And that becomes a highly motivational way of enabling children to learn. And it also stops you unconsciously as a teacher um, dividing the children up into terms of those who can and those who can't. Typically what happens when children are labelled is that they, they become labelled around phonics, around uh, early writing, sometimes around talk. Mm. And that then permeates everything else. Mm. It shouldn't, of course, because children are talented in a range of different ways. But there's a premium set on how neatly can you write, how well can you read. If you happen to be a child with a dyslexic profile, straight away you're disadvantaged in a classroom like that. But this whole notion of um, thinking that the status quo is the status quo, this is this is where it all leads to. So if you look at your class and you look at some children in your class and you sort of think, well, what do you expect you know, those kids, that estate, those parents can't expect any more of them, then those low expectations lead to furthering of low expectations. If, on the other hand, you're able to be open to the notion that every child is capable of succeeding and every child is capable of doing more today than they did yesterday, mm. then we can compound some of those limited expectations. Mm. I, I absolutely... Um, I can't. I abhor the idea of children being put into groups in nursery mm. and in reception, you know, um, and then parents very quickly pick up on which group is my child in. Children pick up on it. It doesn't matter what you call the groups, the children know. Mm-hmm. And straight away there's a sort of um, predetermined, oh, I'm just not very good at that mm. kind of assumption that comes with it. And it also permeates what the parents think of their children. So... They kind of compensate in other ways. Shouldn't be that way at all. Mm. So uh, I think you can tell, feel quite passionate about this. Children with additional needs as well. You know, the idea that we we see the uh, we see the special need before we see the child. All of this, um, I, I I think, is 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 very wrong. Mm. So um, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And obviously. Well, <laughs> that, that's perfect i just wanted to kind of a summary of why you felt it was so important and i think that you've you've nailed that exactly i think that um you're clearly the thoughts around how the labeling of children and placing in these groups is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy isn't it that you're referring to this idea that if you have those low expectations then that is what's going to be aimed for is those low expectations and obviously um that that is very clear from what you're saying so i'm intrigued then so in, in terms of um, do you have any thoughts around why ability grouping has become so prevalent or, or was prevalent or, or whatever the state is with ability groupings in whatever setting uh, teachers listening to are in? Why do you think this is something that is we, we, we have done uh, historically, place children oh, in these groups? Because teaching is really difficult. 
And so this was a way of trying to um, look at your children and think, well, how do I um, differentiate the curriculum in a way that makes it accessible for everybody? Mm. How do I match the task to the capacity of the learner? But it doesn't take into account the fact that the learner themselves is able to be part of that process of choosing how much challenge they can cope with. Mm. So even with very young children, even with children in reception and year one, if um, this is what we used to do in our school, if, if you offer them a choice, if you say, well, look, you can either do this or you can do this, they're able to determine this is where I feel comfortable at the moment with my understanding. This is what I feel I can do. So making choices, constantly making choices and refining those choices and offering challenge um, at the heart of the curriculum is a very motivational way to learn. When I joined that school I told you about, and it was in special measures, mm-hmm. the, uh, the achievement was incredibly low. So there was a kind of limit set on children's capacity to learn. The expectations were very low. Children's expectations of themselves were very low and their parents' expectations were low. So as soon as you lift those limits, as soon as you start to say, well, there's another way of thinking, there's another way of offering, there's another way of doing things, mm-hmm. and children can surprise themselves with what they can achieve, then that's hugely motivational because, wow, look what I did. Now, it's, it's creating the culture where throughout school it's it's an opportunity to constantly stretch yourself links back to that ridiculous example i just gave you the plastic ducks if i'm honest because it's all about what might the opportunities be here what kinds of things can we do in this school that might not be seen to be the norm but that will capture the imagination Mm. and can we do that in a way that doesn't predetermine what any child is going to be able to achieve in this space so therefore children can surprise us with what they can do so if you have something like a quacky races event actually the young child who is very good at construction can actually achieve much more highly than perhaps they may be expected to achieve by an older child who's working with them so all the time it's about disrupting expectations and uh enabling success so then go on no no, go on no carry on carry on please I, i i think that extends to the teaching profession. I think that extends to, you know, we're in such a culture of compliance. We worry all the time that we've got to do what we ought to do. We're worrying about Ofsted coming in, worried about people judging our performance, worried about tracking data, all kinds of things, that actually it stops us too often from really thinking and being able to challenge ourselves in terms of what we offer in the classroom. So creating a climate, a culture within the school and then across a group of schools where that notion of the art of the possible is at the heart is a very liberating way of leading because it's constantly about, and I'll come on to talk about this next, but it's constantly about how do we, how do we trust teachers? How do we, how do we go with the best of what they can offer and constantly help them to be the best they can be in order that the children can thrive? It all, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that like you say, it's this idea that you know these things are possible that anyone can make progress from wherever they're at and i think uh, it reminds me of a kind of this this marginal gains um um i was i was reading about marginal gains and about how you know if everyone can aim to be one percent better each day just that small one percent better over time that snowballs into a huge amount 
but obviously everyone needs to have that culture and that belief that they can you know be that one percent better but as you mentioned you know as, as a classroom teacher with 30 children with a wide range of you know in some cases four to five years of difference in attainment of where they are currently at you know that can be very challenging so if you were talking to a teacher a, a teacher of a class um, and they've got you know all these children that they need to try and cater for but they want to have this ethos in their classroom of or ability in terms of ability we don't want to try and pigeonhole these children what kind of top pieces of advice would you give about teaching day-to-day in the classroom about putting that into place and helping those children in that class um, have that mindset okay well a lot of the curriculum can be differentiated by outcome mm-hmm. so whether that's english or history or music or whatever it may be you know you offer a stimulus you offer scaffolding you offer guidance and then children are able to reach as far as they can in terms of what they're able to do. Within mathematics, um, what we would do is we would offer a series of challenges so that children could make choices about how much challenge they wanted to take on. So we might have, I don't know, um, three different activities and we would say to the children, if you're feeling really on fire with what we've just been talking about on the carpet, go and try this challenge if you really feel like you can do this. If you want to consolidate what we've just been doing, then try this challenge. If you want to revisit what we did before, try this challenge. Mm. And so the idea that the children make a good choice in terms of their learning, they would they would choose activities that if the activity became was too simple, they might only do a couple and then move on to the next activity. Mm. So the child's agency in the process, the child as the learner, the child as the kind of, I can do this, I can already do this. Too often in our classrooms, we underestimate what our children can do. Mm. And so if you underestimate what children can do, then they will just rise to the level that you have ex- expect of them. Um, and I, I genuinely think that a classroom where challenges everything is a very exciting place to be. Mm. And as I say, a- across the curriculum, it's a way of organising learning in a way that is accessible for everybody uh, and at different points in different areas of the curriculum different children will be the ones who are really thriving today in terms of what they're doing when I was teaching that class that that um, nursery reception year one and year two class in that small village school we would have things like we set up a cafe and so some of the children could write menus actually with real words and some of them were just writing menus with emergent writing we were doing cooking, so we were measuring and we were weighing and we we, had, we ran the cafe and parents came and joined in. And, you know, we had times and, all you know, the whole curriculum came together. But some of the children, it was just play around teddies and, and a cafe and other children were, you know, actually being the waiter or the waitress and, and different children. So sometimes four-year-olds would be the ones who would be leading on something and seven-year-olds might not be. So it's all that kind of um, creating a theme where everybody can be involved but at different points in their developing capacity to learn and always expecting the best yeah that's those are some fantastic points there about differentiating by outcomes so the true differentiating differentiating by the selection of activities and i think the key to that because i've kind of gone to and fro with this idea of selection of activities i'll be honest with you but i think the way you explain it I think the key there is that it's clear that it's flexible. So if children do choose something and actually they think, oh, actually, this is a bit more challenging than I thought. Right. I'm going to just go a step back and and just reconsolidate that. And conversely, like you mentioned, if it is too simple, what they've chosen, then 
having the the ability and the flexibility in there and the resilience to go okay i think i'll go and try that next challenge after a couple of questions i think that could be really powerful if that classroom's culture is just right i think it needs to be a high performance culture mm. it needs to be a culture where um people don't just talk about taking risks they actually take risks mm. and it needs and you're right the flexibility is key because you know as well as i do that on some days you're capacity to think and do something is different from on other days and children are just the same and we're all just grown-up children aren't we yeah. <laughs> um yeah. and the, but the idea that the teacher has to know everything and be in control of everything and the children just have to be passive recipients mm. i think leads us into a very dangerous space whereby the teacher is working very very hard all the time and the children aren't necessarily mm. so the children everybody in the room needs to be working uh, at, at the same rate mm. everybody needs to be trying their best Absolutely. And of course, you know, as, as we mentioned right at the start of the podcast, in terms of people or teachers, if they think, oh, it's always, it's okay for Alison to say, but I've got such a range of, of abilities in my class. Well, you've taught a class that had nursery to year two. So I think in terms of ranges, you've seen it in practice. And, you know, a, a lot of the things that are really, really important for teachers to have a takeaway and have a think about, which is great. Um, and as you mentioned, it leads on quite nicely uh, as we were talking about the um, how teachers and schools need to be trusted to be able to, to make this work to build these um, structures these mindsets with their children let's go let's go on to the second of the primary three then which is the importance of teacher agency and trusting teachers so overall do you want to summarize why that's so important to you first Alison? well because if teachers are inspired if teachers can't wait to get into their classroom to deliver lessons because they're excited about what's going to happen the children will also be excited. If you can't wait to teach, the children won't be able to wait to learn. So there's a kind of energy that comes from uh, that whole process. If you're following somebody else's script and you feel like you've got to do what you're told the whole time, you might be very well motivated as a professional, but actually that spark, that magic just might not be there. So I, I think the, the the real trick is to enable teachers to be able to excel in the areas that they know best. Now, the primary curriculum is incredibly demanding. If, you, if you're expected to teach coding, music, <laughs> PE, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell your listeners the range of things that you're expected to be able to excel at. Um, that's quite that's quite a demand. So being able to um, work with colleagues across the school, teach to strengths is something that is um, really powerful. Now, the reason teachers don't necessarily always want to do this is because they feel like, well, maybe this will de-skill me in some way. It's not about being de-skilled. It's about being able to offer real expertise. So in the school where I was a head teacher, for example, we had uh, a history specialist young teacher he was a member of the historical association absolutely passionate about teaching history he got us all kind of inspired to build a celtic hut on the grounds and organized all kinds of trips and so on it just made sense for him to teach the humanities subjects in years three and four mm. and for his um you know co-teacher to come in and teach the science it just made sense mm. um so being able to work with your team to trust them to so that people don't have to overclaim, but can then work in a way where they really feel they can excel yeah. enables a really happy, flourishing school environment, I think. And the reason that I've moved when I moved to the Charter College of Teaching is because I just wanted all of this 
ethos of opportunity to be available to all teachers. I, I, I think the idea of turning up at work, feeling really worried about what you're being expected to do, worried about the quantity of marking that you've got to, you know, spend every evening doing, all of this drains from the core purpose of teaching, which is about how do we connect with youngsters and enable them to be as inspired as they can be. That has to be, the, the energy of the process of connecting with young young children has to be at the heart of what teaching is all about. And so the more that we take people away from that and, and get them worrying about spreadsheets instead of children, um, yeah, let's, let's, let's see what we can do. So being able to build on the evidence, being able to build on the research evidence about what works in classrooms and then enabling that to be shared strikes me as being a really powerful way of liberating the profession and deepening our professionalism. So that's why I trust teachers. Um, you get the occasional one that actually um, isn't in the job for the right reason. Now, nobody comes to work to do a bad job. Mm. Occasionally, people have come into teaching because they perhaps couldn't think what else to do. To be honest, those people aren't going to join the Chartered College of Teaching, and actually they're not the kind of people I wanted in my school. I only ever got rid of one person. I didn't actually sack her, but I did um, encourage her to leave. Um, (laughs) And that was just because I basically just kept sort of... I was on her case a bit. I mean, I didn't like the fact that she ripped up the children's homework and put it in the bin in front of them. I I just felt that wasn't acceptable, that kind of thing. Anyway, um, she was offered another job, and I spoke to the head teacher of the school, and uh, I said, well, we've had a personality clash. We really haven't got on very well. And he said, well, we think she's great. Can we offer her a job? Can she um, can she join us sooner than <laughs> her expected notice? <laughs> and I hadn't got anyone to teach that class, but I knew that was going to be an improvement, so she left. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just occasionally there are people that you – but the vast majority of teachers want to do a good job. The vast majority of people don't come to work to fail. They come to work because they want to thrive and do a good job. Yeah. And actually, when I think about the the listenership of this podcast, I imagine it isn't those teachers that you're referring to that perhaps <laughs> aren't in it for the for the right reasons, because, well, they're listening to a podcast about teaching. So it's their choice, too. But uh, exactly. <laughs> they must be keen beans. Must, they must be keen beans. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I think we understand. And I think I, I understand completely what you're what you're talking about there in the fact that. You know, the vast majority of teachers, you know, uh, will be the ones that are wanting to do a good job, that want to make that difference to the children's lives. And they, they they will put that effort. And actually, sometimes they put too much effort into it. Sometimes they need to sometimes take a step back, actually, and recognize, you know, what their capacity is to be able to, to, to deliver. But actually, the point you made there about um, the curriculum obviously being demanding it is very true. I mean, you look at the list of the objectives, for example, in a year group that a class have to learn, and the teacher has to have the knowledge and the understanding of that every of every objective and teach and know how to teach it to young children is a huge, huge thing. Actually, when you sit and you reflect on that, it is, and in, and in some cases, it's not realistic. And I don't think there's any shame in that. You know, you said at the beginning of this podcast, oh, you're 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 obviously an arts sort of person. Yeah, I am. Mm. I'm I'm much more uh, on fire talking about the arts than I would be about maths and science. So why not? Why not? You know, um, enable that skill to be shared in the way that uh, everybody's happier, aren't they? Absolutely. And actually, I've I've seen I can tell sort of from personal experience on this. Actually, that in a previous setting, um, I was a two form entry school. 
and uh, I was the maths lead and my year partner was the English lead and so we just one day just said to each other well why don't we try yeah. this out actually you teach Ooh. that subject you teach that one and see how it goes and it worked really really well because I, I got to know that subject even more in depth because I was just focusing on that subject. I was doing these things um, which every single day with both groups of children, I was seeing what was working, I was adjusting it for each class and, and things like that. And she was doing the same for the English. Um, and, and, it's, and I'm so pleased you mentioned about, well, some some would say, you know, just does that not de-skill you? And it's like, well, well, no, because I'm, I'm talking to her. We, we are in constant communication about how things are going. I'm still engaging with, with the, the professional development around English that we're doing as a school anyway. And, you know, now I'm in a different setting where I am teaching English and I don't feel de-skilled. I, I, I pick up those skills that I developed on the way and I continue to improve them. So I think that it's, it's definitely something for schools to really consider how they can use, look at that timetable. Obviously, it's a bit more challenging in smaller schools, I understand. But actually, like you mentioned, across year three and four, you know, if you've got two teachers there, one with a particular passion with one thing, one with a particular passion with another, why not try it out and see if they can, can make that work? Exactly. And it's, you know, ultimately, it's what's best for the children. Hmm. Absolutely. And that is ultimately what we are trying to do is, is the absolute best for them. Uh, yes. So that, yeah. I completely agree with you on that. Uh, let's move now on to your, your final of the primary three, which talking about doing the best for children I mean, this is seeming to flow beautifully uh, through the episode um we are now going to talk about listening to the children staff and the wider community so i mean i mean clearly obviously this is an important thing but why for you have you chosen this out of all the things you could have chosen why have you chosen this as one of your primary three because i just don't know why why would you set out to teach a group of children and never engage with them never ask them what they think mm. never ask them what they're interested in never gives them an opportunity to comment. I mean, it's just, it would it just, I just wouldn't do that. Mm. So when I became a head teacher, I, I, the first thing I said was, this is going to be a listening school. Mm. And it was about all of the community coming together to move the school from special measures. Everybody then celebrated when it became outstanding. Um, and listening to children means that you have to actually not just hear what they say, but actually act on what they say. So clearly, if they're telling you they want a chocolate fountain in the playground, that's not going to happen. But actually, children don't. Once they've got beyond, once, once you've shown them that you're genuinely listening to them, they offer very, very sensible solutions to all kinds of things. So we, we had mixed-age circle groups that met every week in our school instead of a school council. just meant that the children were involved in decision-making across the school, they were involved in discussing the books that they liked, um, all kinds of things that just informed our knowledge of how we could best work together. And I think the best leaders listen to the colleagues they work with and the best schools listen to their communities. So I think listening is a really powerful skill. Uh, and as, as I say, it, it builds a culture where everybody feels valued, mm. every member of staff. You know, it's about showing that Everybody who works in the school is as important as each other in the same way that all our children are important, mm. all our parents are important. And so that inclusive way of leading, um, whether you're a class teacher or whether you're a head teacher, just pays dividends. Mm. You know, we're, all, we're all striving for the same things. It doesn't mean that you don't get, sometimes you get stroppy parents who are angry about things and then it but then almost always it's about giving them space mm. to let them talk about the things that they're really angry about or shout about the things they're really angry about and have the courage to kind of sit tight until they've finished mm. and then typically 
what happens is that you talk again and actually the thing they're really angry about is something completely different to what they've been shouting about. And it's usually because they've got an anxiety. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say listening is 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 fundamental. Yeah. And now at the Chartered College, it's about listening to teachers all over the country. And it's, teachers don't agree, of course. You know, I mean, we, we agree on more than we disagree, but there are all kinds of nuances. Um, and so it's really important that we respect that plurality of voices across from teachers from all different sectors, all different age ranges, different contexts, and see what we can do to support all of them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It, it is so important. I think that... Um this that the point you made uh, about uh, the idea of listening to colleagues and about listening to, to all stakeholders in, in with people that are involved with those children that come to your school it has such an impact and like you say when i think sometimes we worry don't we that if we uh, if we're going to open our, our doors and if we're going to listen to parents or listen to we we're going to get all these complaints and things and actually i think part of it is the fact that we just need to give them that space to just yeah air that and like you say and, and the number of experiences I've had recently uh, with the role that I'm in and being able to actually give that space to, to the parent to say whatever they need to say and to, and to air that out and then actually you are then able to say I've heard that and this is what we've, we've done about it and this is what we can we can do about it the, the whole atmosphere between the, everyone changes because they recognize you, you are trying to do what's best for the child and all of course they're seeing is their one perspective and it's often the fact that they just need to come and have a talk about it uh, and we can move forward to that uh, i had an experience where i was uh, talking to, to a, a nursery that uh, had children being sent to our school and they were trying to find a way to make something with the, the pickup easier uh, and i just said okay well i'll take that away have a talk about it and i really did and i saw what i could do and then i went back and said well we've had to talk about it we're going to struggle to do what you've asked and they said that's absolutely fine i'm just i'm just pleased you listened and you went and had and tried to, to sort it out we'll continue mm -hmm. doing this particular thing and it was just fantastic because it was listening like you say to to those people mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that uh, and, and the children as well so i'm interested then so obviously you mentioned uh, your your school uh, that you led and listening to the children so what types of things um did you do to, to kind of give those spaces and those forums for, t for children to speak up and share their opinions and was there things that happened that were really successful as a result of this yeah so so we use circle times and we use circle times in mixed age groups which the children led and the teachers participated in as equal members they were weekly we had a, um, a, a collective theme for discussion. So it could be like, um, I don't know, there's too much litter in the school ground. Someone's noticed there's too much litter. What can we do about it? And then all the children would discuss what we might do about it. The year sixes would take notes. The year sixes would then come back together. They would share the notes across all the circle groups. And then we'd go back the next week and say, well, what you, you said you wanted to do this. Now we're going to try this. So it was every area of school life that you could think of. Um, how do we make football cards fair right through to, um, I don't know, what sort of, how do we approach homework? How do we, how do we work at home? All kinds of things, engaging the children and the teachers in conversation. And there, there were weekly meetings of 15 minutes long with a follow-up by the year sixes. And we had a notice board in the centre of the school where um consequences of circle meetings were recorded things that had been decided were so everybody could see what was happening and then we had a radio station where we shared the outcomes of these kind of things so 
all the time it was about a genuine engagement, not just a, well, let's all talk about this today and then it never went anywhere. It's always got, it, it needs to be an active process of listening. But that was just the formal approach. And then informally, listening in terms of children making choices in their learning, as I've just described, that is all about a culture that says, I respect you. you you're the best per- placed person to decide how much challenge you can cope with today. You're the person who's, who best knows what you can do. So you're the best person to actually decide. Um, so that that notion of constantly working in, in dialogue, constantly working in partnership with the children, um, yeah, that, and it just worked. So that 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 few minutes there, where you just kind of outlined that. I've just written all that down because that, that's a brilliant idea. And obviously, uh, well, obviously with uh, with the pandemic and how things are going, with that, obviously it may be difficult at this moment for some schools, depending on how things are, wherever you are when this goes out, to to have these mixed aged um, kind of settings and things like that. But certainly, I love the idea of just having a regular consistent and i think that's the key as well isn't it making it regular consistent a key part of the school drive and development uh and then having that chance to just air that conversation have those discussions and have it you know from things like football cars right the way through to how school policies like homework and various things like that are are agreed that that sounds fantastic Uh, Alison. thank you so much for sharing that we would always start with a, a game like pass the smile or something like that and then um, and we'd end with a game like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> any kinds of, uh, just, just to kind of make sure that it was seen as lighthearted, but 15 minutes yeah. of real engagement with students across the school in mixed age groups, it meant that all the teachers, all the teaching assistants, all the children knew what each other were thinking. Mm. Great I mean, for behaviour management as well. Absolutely, because obviously these children are meeting together and they're seeing the role models of the older children, the, the older children are seeing the younger children and seeing themselves as those role models and that they have an important part to, part to play there. And actually this idea, in terms of 15 minutes once a week, you could easily, for one of your collective worships or your assemblies or whatever, use one of those times. And that is some real meaningful content that goes That's what on. we did. That's what we did. We did it instead of an assembly. And we would do it on a Tuesday morning just before playtime. So if any of the circle groups finished before other ones, they would go out to play. Hmm. So it meant you didn't have kind of, you know, people waiting outside doors and things of classrooms and what have you. Yeah. And it was Ofsteaded. So therefore it must be right, must well, it? There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's got the Ofsted seal of, seal of approval. There, there we, we are. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and actually, I mean, obviously, I mean, that, that might help some schools. I mean, obviously, we, we laugh about that. Some schools may find that comforting. But actually, to me, it just sounds like really good quality um, practice uh, that, that we can put into our schools. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Alison, for your time. Really, really appreciated your time. And thank you so much for pra- joining us today. Got two f- remaining questions for you. Uh, the first one is, who would you recommend for a future interview on this podcast? The Tim Brigg House. So Sir Tim is still very active in education. He's just published a, a new book. Um, and his wisdom about what works in schools is phenomenal. So I would really highly recommend Tim Brighouse. Excellent. Thank you so much. And then finally, Alison, what for you is the best thing about being in primary education? Well, I'm not in primary education anymore. I work for the Chartered College, but I think you can tell from all the things I've been saying, you know, I love children Mm. um, and I love the genuine nature of children children will always tell you 
um, what they really think. And uh, there's a real energy around primary schools and a joyfulness around primary schools. And if ever I visit a school and it's subdued, that's quite a sad time because actually schools should be full of life. And uh, yeah, there's so much I love about primary schools. I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to define one thing, but yeah. Brilliant. And thank you so much. And it's clear that obviously, you know, you have that passion for it. And thank you so much for taking your time on, uh, from today to just share, you know, this 45 or so minutes with us to be, share these brilliant things. Uh, thank you so much, Alison, for joining us on Primary Education Voices. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there you have it, listeners, a fantastic episode with Dame Alison Peacock. Uh, it was honestly an absolute honour and privilege to have uh, the time that we had to talk together about uh, primary education and just learn from her um, fantastic insights, her stories um, and her pieces of, of advice and philosophies for teachers today. Um, really, um, there is so much uh, to, to talk about. I'm not going to go through everything we talked about because I, I wrote reams and reams of notes uh, about it. But let's focus in on her primary three, as I generally do in these um kind of conclusions to the episode. The first, of course, being that discussion we had about ability groups. Uh, this is something which I know is uh, discussed a lot uh, in education about about setting children, about not setting children, about grouping children by abilities in a classroom, um, whether it's a low ability table, a high ability table, phonics groups, maths groups, spelling groups, all sorts of groups and things like that. And so um, this is clearly something that Alison is very uh, passionate about in terms of not having these ability groups, not labelling children as a certain ability in a certain subject. Obviously, as a teacher, we may understand or, or know about, you know, know how some children are struggling in a subject more than others. But labelling them and where we place them in the class, what curriculum we deliver them, uh, we deliver to them. Uh, she's very passionate that we don't um, it separate children to do this. Uh, with that research that she mentioned with the University of Cambridge and this issue of labelling children, um, it's very clear that she's found out a lot of information. And if you if you look into the work that she has created, you know, you'll find that all throughout uh, what she says and does. Um, this idea that low expectations lead to low outcomes, you know, it, it is quite clear you're not going to get a child who you want to try and push further and closer to reduce the gap between them and their peers uh, by having low expectations for them. And yet you are doing that, uh, in Alison's view, by putting them in ability groups. Um, I was particularly interested to, to, to hear then from Alison, because as we discussed, the reason teachers and schools and leaders may do this is to make it easier for the teachers to differentiate, because there is it is very difficult teaching to such a wide range of abilities in one classroom. I was interested to hear Alison's thoughts on how we can uh, accommodates uh, for you know teaching in a mixed age class rather than in ability groups and her ideas were fantastic as as expected differentiating by outcome in the subjects that you're able to uh, in subjects where that might be more difficult such as mathematics using a using your sequence of uh, questions and tasks that you do purposeful practice that you do in your class to make sure that all children are challenged at all, at all stages. And Alison was very specific about having the children and giving the children the opportunity to choose their challenges as well. That particular technique in teaching is something, as I mentioned in the podcast, I I did to start with, then I stopped doing, then I, I started doing it again because I saw the potential in it perhaps, and then I stopped doing it again because again, I wasn't too sure. Uh, and I think it's something which, you know, Alison's made me reflect on a little bit more, actually, and think how I can include that again in my practice. 
But obviously, the idea, as she says, is making it clear to the children that it's flexible. So if they have chosen a challenge that is more too difficult or too easy for them, that they make that adjustment there and then in that moment uh, and that they aim to challenge themselves as much as they can. And actually, she made the point, which I've not heard in a discussion about this idea of, you know, selecting a challenge in a classroom that the children get to choose that challenge, is that someday some children might just not be up to that hard challenge today and, and may need to go for the medium challenge, even if generally they can go for the higher challenge. Because some days, just like we all do, we are not feeling on it. We're just not ready for that challenge. I know I get those days. And so I thought that was some really interesting things to, to ponder on and reflect uh, from that discussion. The second of the primary three, of course, about in, um, trusting teachers uh, and giving them that uh, agency to do what they need to in the class and the same for schools as well. Uh, I think, you know, this idea that curriculum is demanding. And so any way that we can re reduce teachers' workload by letting them and enabling them um, and making it possible for them to teach subjects that they are passionate about and have a wide knowledge about is a really important point and something that I, as I mentioned, have personally seen. Uh, I mentioned the maths and the English and it's actually um, when our school became a three form entry school and we had three teachers in a year group, we would have uh, we would try and book in our years uh, computer time and PE hall time and uh, at the same time and then do like a rotation so um, I would do the computing generally because I feel a bit more confident with that than my, my um, teacher year group partners did. Another teacher who was more into their PE did the PE. Another teacher um, who wasn't as interested in the PE and the computing, uh, um, didn't feel as confident, uh, taught the RE. And I think, you know, it was it was a really good structure which helped us make sure that one, we taught all those subjects because I know for a fact that um, if there's a subject that I'm less confident on, then sometimes if there's a bit of a time squeeze on the timetable, that's generally the first subject to go. Uh, and so making sure we are teaching all the subjects that the curriculum is being delivered and it's doing so with passion and enthusiasm as well. I think that was a really important point made uh, about um, that from Alison. And finally, of course, listening to children. I absolutely loved Alison's. I mean, I, I'm skipping a load of things we talked about. You've just listened to the episode. Please listen back to it if there's some things that you picked up on. Uh, that you'd like to uh, listen again about. But this idea about um, these mixed age group circle times, I mean, obviously, like I mentioned during the COVID-19 pandemic, that may be a little bit of a challenge for some schools at this time, but certainly something we can work towards. Uh, I think that that is a really good idea on how t children can be heard and see that their actions being taken on board. Um, anyway, I'm going to have to stop there because this uh, this conclusion is already longer than any other conclusion I've done. But there was just so many wonderful things that we that uh, Alison um, shared in, in, in this episode. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, all that's left for me to say is that if there's a primary colleague that you'd love to hear more from, please contact me on Twitter through at Prime Edu Voices or me personally at mroberts 19 at And let me know what inspiring primary teacher, TA, support staff, school leader, whoever it is that's involved in primary education that you would love to hear featured on a future episode. Please, please, please do subscribe to this podcast so you can get a weekly dose of inspiration from these brilliant practitioners. And please leave a review on your podcasting platform as well. That would really help get the word out. Thank you so much for joining me for another Primary Education Voice and see you again next time when we will meet another inspirational educator.